The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. I also want to bring to you Yukonuba Sporting Dog, the premium performance 3020 blend. For the last 50 years, Yukonuba has created premium nutrition that unlocks the power and potential within. From the unstoppable performance of the sporting dogs to the life-saving abilities of working dogs to the incredible companionship of service animals and family pets. Check out Yukonuba Sporting Dog today and go pick up a bag of the 3020 premium performance blend and guys last but not least i want to thank my affiliates lion country supply and garmin fish and hunt go check them out today for the spring training season ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the gun dog notebook podcast with your host Darrell smith um i just want to start off by saying a special thank you to the editors all the editors and and and, and good folks that have worked with me to give all to get all of these you know magazine opportunities and stuff like that to write and things like that i, I really appreciate y'all man um you know just everybody that that's giving me a shot um, and I hope you guys, you know, the listeners, I hope you guys are enjoying um, the stuff that I've been writing as well. I've been doing a whole lot of it recently. Um, but anyway, so this week we are on the line following up off of last week's uh, episode with Jeff Ryder. I'm picking back up with his son, Josh Ryder, who I initially met um you know, not too long ago when we started talking about sponsorship and things like that, because Trinity um Trinity Kennels is our new official sponsor as of September 1st, um, and they are really, really, really nice breeders of French Britneys. So anyway, that's the the first little shout out that I wanted to, you know, go ahead and open up with. The next thing is, guys, it is Kentucky Derby Week. It's Kentucky Derby Week, man. Um, I'm really excited about it. This is kind of an interesting year. It's a funky year, man, because the Derby was supposed to be in May, and now it's in September. What did it do to the horses and things like that? But I also think it is a um, highly significant derby because my dog is going into his derby season um, for field trialing. So, you know, the the, the similarities there were kind of interesting. Um, the other thing is, and I'm kind of getting my hand really started in this whole horse thing. Um, I just like animals, man. I like performance animals. But anyway, um, I've got one small share put in on a bob baffert horse um by the name of authentic he is the number two horse right now going into the derby last time i checked it looked at the chart um you know and i've been keeping my eye on a few others but i'm just excited about that kind of getting another life goal of mine you know started um i'm using the my racehorse app if you guys want to check that out i thought it was pretty cool um and so another another thank you I want to do is is thank Onyx Maps for re-signing um, another contract with me for for sponsorship. So that again will be our long-standing title sponsor, Onyx Maps. Um, make sure you go and check out the waypoints and, and the new features and and 
all the things before you get into the season, guys. I hope y'all used it before the scout. All right. And then Garmin, of course, is back on the team still. We are staying in partnership with them um, and, and, and keeping and, and keeping on Team Garmin, man. So I'm excited about that. Um, that'll be another good longstanding relationship that we are working with. And, um, of course, guys, go check out Minority Outdoor Alliance, my new nonprofit. We are getting some things going for the fall and, and, and winter time. It's a lot of planning, man. Nonprofits are a lot of work, but I hope it's good work, man. I hope you guys enjoy it. I know it'll be good work, but I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, you know, when we start doing that, you can check out minorityoutdooralliance.org. Um, we get a chance and let me, you know, let me know what you think about what we got going on. Um, and then, and it's going to grow, it's going to evolve, it's going to build us another, uh, significant life project of mine, you know, that, that I would have never honestly thought that I'd be engaged in, but that's what we have platforms for. And that's what we have, um, things like doing good work. I think I put that on episode 100, man, just doing good work. And so that's kind of it for me. Um, I also guys want y'all to check, check me out at the, uh, TRCP Capital Awards Banquet. I had a little little piece in that with Whit Fosberg and Stephen Ranella. Just a you know a thank you and things like that. But go and check it out. Um, you know, get involved, man. TRCP is a super 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 great organization, and I've spoke to Whit Fosberg a number of times. Um, you know, just his insights, man. The things that you want to know about conservation and getting involved. Whit is your man. So I want to thank Whit for that opportunity as well um my last well i guess second to last thing um my buddy shane drake he's got a litter of short hair puppies that are available you know i wouldn't advocate for a short hair puppy but it is shane and that's my homeboy anyway you're looking for it um give me a buzz or reach out to me via dm email however you want to do it um and I can put you in contact with Shane. He is here down in Georgia with me. Um, a couple of couple of last little housekeeping things. Like I said, we're we we're 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 bringing in an older sponsor, but we've been rocking with them for a good little while, just as far as building a relationship. And um, they were actually one of the first that that took in interest in, in in partnering up with me but dakota 283 kennels all right they uh they are hopping back on team gundog notebook um and we are looking forward to working with them um for another year as well and and probably longer than that i hope longer than that greg is a cool dude um you know greg is a cool dude and and really spends a lot of time working on new kennels new just innovative ideas greg's kind of an inventor I, I, he's got like that spirit about him um so check him out man check out dakota 283 kennels um and you can now again i don't know if it ever really stopped being able to be used but use my promo code guys tgdn10 you can get yourself 10 percent off at checkout um i currently use a g3 medium kennel um so i would definitely 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 advise getting it is definitely big enough for my um really both my dogs my 60 pound lab and my 40 41 pound pointer okay um with plenty of space so that's the one that i always like um and we can we can talk more about that if you got questions 
anyway guys i don't want to give you guys any more announcements than what i already had those are some new updates and a lot of good new changes um so stay tuned for another episode of the gun dog notebook podcast we got josh Ryder of trinity kennels on the line hang on I think we can effectively say you were the other half of Trinity Kennels, right, Josh? That would be, a, yeah, a, a good description. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's 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 pick up off, uh, off of last week. What did what did you think about there? What did did we touch on anything you didn't know about your dad or found interesting? No, you guys covered a lot of stuff that dad likes to talk about and dig into with the dogs and whatnot. I was, I was especially glad that you guys spent a little bit of time with prepotency and COI and stuff like that. Cause that's something that he's really spent a lot of time mm-hmm. trying to work with and analyze with our breeding program going forward. So I, it was fun for me to get to hear him talk about what's, what's passionate for him right now in the breeding program. Right. Right. Now, you know, have you, is that a, is that a frequent conversation between you and da- your dad about COI, or is that primarily him? If by frequent you mean three plus times a week, then yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> I think that's pretty frequently. It's frequent. <laughs> I uh, so so let me, let me be a fly on the wall. What? How does that conversation go? Put me put me in in the uh, in the room with with that conversation. So probably every other day <laughs> if we're having a busy week that we're calling to talk about who's coming into heat what's the breeding plan look like where do we want to go with this particular female this particular heat cycle things like that mm-hmm. and typically what happens is i have done more homework on different dogs and lineages and stuff like that and how that pairs well with what we're doing and dad usually has a bulk of the conversation on what the coi cross would be and mm-hmm. you know are any of the males out of that prepotent? Are any of the females something we really want? If that's the case, you know, do we want to look at keeping a female or keeping a male, depending on what chromosome cross you really want to get out of the breeding, stuff like that. So gotcha. now, it gets, how, are, it gets, how, how are y'all getting these numbers though? Like, is there, how do you, like, what's the math or, or, or like, what's the mechanism that you use to get like the COI percentages and things like that? Yeah. So I, I geek out. Um, I use Dog Breeder Pro. Okay. Online platform that you can enter all your dogs into. So you can go back as many generations as you want to and plug in all the ancestry. Okay. And then it for you the the generational similarities, um, the coefficient of inbreeding, all kinds of stuff like that. And then we we also use Embark, which is a DNA kit system. We swab all of our dogs' cheeks or whatever with that, and that gives us. So the right COI that we typically use is a pedigree-based coefficient of inbreeding, and mm-hmm. then genetically we can get a DNA-based coefficient of inbreeding. So Jesus. we tend to use both of those to look at what pairs well and how. Yeah, you know, I think it was you were talking to Steeple Bell a couple episodes ago. I was listening mm-hmm. to, but he was going back to families, you know, and, and some of the hub families of the pointers. Mm-hmm. The, D, the DNA-based one really gets us back to four or five true hub families for our breed really um in history so using that it's not uncommon to have a couple dogs with like a 30 percent dna based coefficient of inbreeding but that's okay. going back to like 
when they had 15 dogs of this breed a couple hundred years ago. Wow. Okay. That's cool. Can you give what, what did you find out about those like foundational families in, in, in the, the, the French Brittany breed? Did you find anything interesting there? It's interesting to see the per, the percentage difference of what dogs went into the different foundational families. What you mean? Right. So like with any pointing breed, there's some pointers and setter and something else, you know, mm-hmm. and they kind of whittle it down and, and get the right structure, size, personality, and, and style that they wanted for that dog. And mm-hmm. so each of the families has kind of a distinctly different look mm-hmm. in some ways. So like there's some lines that they just still have that, that pointer looking head, you know, in a, in a French Brittany or an Epignol Breton body, but you can tell there's more pointer in their foundational family. Other, okay. other dogs have a little bit longer snout and they, they tend to have a lot longer nose as far as scenting. Mm-hmm. Those dogs have more setter in their background. Okay. Um, stuff like that, which is, you can see it if you know what you're looking for, if you've seen enough dogs, um, but you can also just read it in the DNA with the embark uh, tool that we use. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. So I, man. All right. So there's some setter in there. All right. That, that makes a lot of sense, but I guess the, the, the interesting thing for me is to figure out, like, I've always had the question of how, like, if we know dogs are domesticated, right? Like they're highly manufactured beings. How did we scale them? You see what I'm saying? Like, how do we scale them down to be something, you know, as small as a French Brittany, but how did we scale them up to be, you know, like a bloodhound? You see what I'm saying? I do. It's a good, and I have no real idea. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and to, to be able to say, okay, I want this amount of pointer, this amount of setter, this amount of, you know, spaniel of whatever, you know, bloodline that, that goes into Brittany's is, and, and all of that stuff, like, you keep some things consistent and some things you keep adding a little bit more of. And that's just a, a very interesting process to me. Like how do we create these breeds as, as human beings? Like what did it, you know what I'm saying? Because it, who, who's to say that, a, 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 a just cause you breed a pointer and a setter and something else that it's going to get smaller. You know what I'm saying? Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 I think about stuff like that, man. And I'm just like, okay, what, you know, what, what, who figured out the method, you know, who figured it out? Right. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. I talk about, you know, heads and noses and stuff like that. But if you look at the, I'm going to call them EVs, if that's okay, it's shorter mm-hmm. and easier. Um, if you look at their coats too, you get, you get dogs with finer coats, more, almost more of the pointer style of mm-hmm. coat, not quite that thin or that fine, but similar. Right. So you get dogs with longer coats. Um, and that goes back to their family of origin as well. So and that's, that's, that's where the misnomer of spaniel comes in, in, in the English language, by the way. So, fact. Yeah, so people, at what point did they drop the spaniel out of like the Brittany name? So that has to do with, um, ignorance and translation honestly okay the spaniel we think of a flushing dog mm-hmm. typically uh the word epignol the french word over there that we translated spaniel um refers to the coat length yeah 
they're a longer haired pointing dog is all that word means. It has nothing to do with flushing <laughs> pointing. So we so, basically took that and just ran with it over here. Yeah, we're just like, all right, Spaniel. Uh, <laughs> not a flushing dog. <laughs> and then you get all those questions. Oh, but my yeah, gosh. Here we just ended up dropping the word Spaniel because it was so poorly translated that it didn't even mean the same thing as it means over there. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's actually wise. That's, that's you know, I, I I was wondering like, okay, why, at what point does this dog do Spaniel work? And admittedly, when I first got, got, a, got into learning about bird dogs and stuff like that, I used to wonder why people would say Brittany Spaniel. And I, I asked myself, like, at what point does this dog, you know, go and become a flushing dog? Unless, you know, unless you just prefer it to be, if you like release it on command, you see what I'm saying? But like, at what point yeah. would, and it was very confusing. I was like, so what, why does it point? Does it flush? Like what, you know, what are we doing here? And it, I figured it out later, but it was just always a weird kind of thought, you know? Yeah, so. it was definitely poor translation and poor understanding of what the Europeans meant by Epignol. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So I want to go back though, man. Like you, you and your father have just a really – Y'all actually have a really cool relationship the way that I see it, like and especially the way that you guys um, respect each other in the space of Trinity Kennels. Right. Like it, it, it sounds like there are good decisions made on both sides. And and you guys work collaboratively as a team, but like you had to have gotten there. And, and, and I really want to know what was it like? What did a day in a life look like for you as a kid watching your dad, you know, you know, be the dog man that he is. I, he left me very little choice and I thank him for that. You know, he is, he is the dog father, uh, of, of our area for what it's worth. He's been mm-hmm. for so long, as long as almost anybody else still breathing in the, as far as in the breed, uh, 30 going on 32 years or whatever. But from the time I could fit in a bird bag, I was along for the hunt. You know, he, he'd throw me in the, in the bird pouch and we'd go. And he worked nights, so he would hunt almost every morning after he got off before he'd go to bed for the day. Mm-hmm. So I, at two years old, I was I was hunting five days a week, you know. I didn't really have any idea what was going on, but it's just, <laughs> He's just a lot out of there now. are pop, not pop, and that was one of them for me. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's cool. So he was out there, like, didn't know, didn't know what was going on, but, you know. <laughs> It was fun. That is an interesting, um, that's just an interesting way to come up. I didn't come up like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated when I meet guys who grew up in it, like you, you know, who've grown up in it for, for a long time like that. I, I kind of had to find my way in adulthood. (laughs) So, and it's been fun, but I, I could imagine what the perspective of a kid looks like out there chasing birds you know absolutely no it was it was a ton of fun early on you know i i fell in love with the dogs from a young age you know if you couldn't find me in the house i'd probably crawled out the back door and was in the whelping box which was something that happened not not infrequently really i'd be yeah just be sitting there playing with weak old puppies and they'd come out hollering for me and i i wouldn't answer they'd have to come find me but well they say kids make the best uh so uh puppy socializers 
well, hopefully it was true. A lot of- <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you didn't do nothing to corrupt them puppies. Right. Nah, yeah. I, 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 I'm pretty sure that uh, based on the way everything is panned out now, man, I'm pretty sure you was all right. So, like, when you were when you were there, when did you know, start to notice your role started to take over or, or change, you know, at the kennels? Like, at what point did you start to realize that you were aligning with the vision? So there was definitely seasons and evolutions, uh, both to the kennel and also to my involvement. So mm-hmm. I, from, a, from a younger age, elementary school or whatever, you know, dad, dad worked a lot at the time he was, he was busy with work. And so me and my younger brother from the time I was probably six and he was four or seven and five, we'd have to come home from school and go break dogs and feed and water dogs and scoop the kennel. And I remember I had to be in, had to be fourth or fifth grade. Dad was gone for a business trip and we had a female come in heat and he wanted to breed her. She was small and he wanted to breed her to a dog that was bigger. And I called him and I said, I don't think this is going to work. And he said, yeah, well, you just got to hold her up. And I was like, that was an eye-opening moment for me. <laughs> the level of involvement that was becoming expected of me. Wow. Uh, from there, you know, just started getting into helping whelping dogs, uh, weaning dogs, training puppies. You know, the old school method of wing on a string before it became past day to do it. You know, I don't. Why is it past it? I do it. <laughs> I don't know I, about anybody else. I do it still. I still do it too from time to time. I, I think it's a good way to socialize dogs and birds, especially in our breed. Right. So, well, yeah. So and then from there, hunting for me died kind of mid high school. I, I became the quintessential high school athlete person who was more concerned with basketball, baseball, and girls than I was with the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And I became, I became a deer hunter only for probably six, five, six years. And then I got an opportunity to get my first own dog, really part of the kennel, but the first one that I actually picked out, went and saw the, the sire in the dam and, and said, that's the breeding I want and such. And that was Tess, who was Moose's mother, um, for reference sake. Okay. But, and that was, that was the summer before my senior year of college that I really kind of started to re-enter the kennel and, and everything that was going on. Now, what all, what all did you do with her? Were you competing with her or you just hunting her? My intention was to compete with her um, and to hunt with her, but I actually so I, I did the four plus fun plan in college. So I graduated in December instead of the previous May. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got her in May and she stayed up with me at college through December. And then I ended up moving to Jamaica for about two years to do missionary work down there. And so she ended up going to the kennel and staying with mom and dad. And, uh, and she, she never came back home with me. She did. We just hunted her, you know, the rest of her life. She's still alive, but. Okay, cool. And how old is she now? She would be 11. Okay. All right. So yeah, she, 11, she's, she's got plenty of work in. And of course, you go down in Jamaica, meet your wife. <laughs> so. That's right. Yeah, it was a it was a trip that was well worth it. That's yeah, for sure. Okay, there you go. There you go. I um that that one there was just really interesting to me. I was like, huh, that's a that is a unique way to to go about meeting someone. Um, <laughs> so I yeah, that's uh, a- so did did she have any involvement with the uh, with the dogs? No, sir. She is not of the hunting phenotype. Okay. <laughs> She, okay. She dogs. Um, 
she supports what I do with them, but she does. She's not a fan of killing things, right? So, and I'm not one of those guys. Who, you know, says yeah, it's, it's gamesmanship. We're hunting now. Well, we are, but really, what we're doing, if we're being dead honest, is we're we're training dogs to kill birds. Right. Well, that's right? the goal. At the, when it when it, when we break it down and boil it down to it, yeah, that's absolutely what we're doing. So, and you know, there, there's a part of, there's a part of life that requires that, whether it's the guy with the chicken farm or me, me, you know, upland hunting, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. Once a little more humane. Uh, one, my way. Right. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that, man. I've had a lot of people and, and, and of course, in this particular ball game, people find out that you, oh, you, you hunt birds. Do you, do you, you know, do you eat them? Isn't that always the, it's always, do you eat them? And, and if so, or if not, what do you do with them? And I think there's this like responsibility that we have to for things like that. Even, you know, game recovery, right? Like when we go out hunting to be able to actually go out and and your dog is proficient at finding game, right? Right. All of those things are, are our responsibility because again, there's that that image of a carnivore, right? Like and and that's the image that we don't need to kind of perpetuate in this, in this ball game. I actually like, you know, advocating for just training dogs in and of itself and not taking a gun. If I'm being honest, but you know, I just think we have a responsibility. I can't say that that's my motif most of the time, but I can absolutely support it. You know, that's why I, I guide with moose as much as I can. And right. Yeah, somebody's taking game, but it's not me. I'm just out there working my dog, right. and that's to me more fun than carrying a gun. You know? Right, right, and and I, you know we all like hunting, but I I'm I'm about right there with you. When I was um when I my our first season guiding here, uh, I don't know, man. It was something just weirdly satisfying about watching my dog help somebody else out. You know what I'm saying? Like it. And, and the gratitude that they got, like um, one performance that we had, man, um, the dude had brought his son out. His son was older. I think he was like just now just getting out of college or something. And um, I ended up I ended up guiding him and my dog, both of them put on, I mean, a, a rock star show. Right. Like, I mean, birds pointed. Everything's held you know steadiness out the out the roof i mean it was you know it was really nice to see that but it was also nice to watch somebody else get the satisfaction of of what it is that we see in it right and his son was hooked after that i mean just like just based on that performance and that's what i think that we're responsible for moments like that you know absolutely yeah one of the one of the guys i'm helping train right now he has a moose puppy that was sold by me guiding for him last fall. Okay. He came out with his boss and they, they came out for a hunt. They're, they're police officers down by DC. Actually, they came out for a hunt. They didn't know me from Adam really at the time, but hunted over moose. And by the time we left, he had a deposit on a puppy and now his, his boss has a deposit on a puppy for this next year. So there you go. And it, it's all about the dogs, right? They, they fell in love with watching the dog work, not over taking, Mm-hmm. planted pheasant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. It, it, I mean seeing that <laughs> it's a night and day difference when you see something when you see quality work right like it's it's a night and day di- it's enough to sell you I mean isn't that the point um, I heard a field trial judge say you know we were, or we were talking 
me and my buddy, he had, he had, he was a good judge. That's what it was. Um, me and my buddy Tim Cavanaugh, we were talking about it, and and I asked him like, "What do you think makes a good dog as far as judging one?" Right, and he was like, "One that old, <laughs> one that 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 makes me want to buy it." <laughs> Something along those lines. I mean, good dog work, man. That will that speaks volumes that that you were able to get those people dogs from your kennel, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like you said, that's, that's the fun part is watching somebody light up over the idea of getting into upland hunting because of dog work. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, all right, we, we gonna, we gonna move a little bit further into the, um, into the pedigrees, um, at, at Trinity Kennels. So, First of all, what do you put an equal emphasis on the dams and the sires in y'all's breeding? It, it, I, I, I met, I've met a lot of guys that have a big interest in the females and what and, and what those what genetics are getting passed down there. What's your thoughts on that kind of on that breeding process? Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And it depends on what I'm looking to keep. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh as an example, if I'm looking to keep a male, I'm I'm heavily leaning towards what male am I using to produce that litter, because I know for sure what Y chromosome's coming out. Mm-hmm. Right? It's going to be grandsire to sire to son. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always a direct. Um, it, uh, it it's passed down directly. Yep. Yeah. So we're we're not playing any games when it comes to the X chromosome on the female side. You know, I I could be getting one of two dogs ultimately one of six or seven dogs, you know, tracing that female back mm-hmm. following the X chromosome. So I can't be as certain typically uh, out of a female what chromosome structure I'm going to get as far as passing on qualities. You know, it's, it's, take our, our female test is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. So I know Moose carries test is X chromosome. Mm-hmm. And I know that that comes um, from one of a couple dogs. You know, and and those dogs are fantastic dogs. So I know what I'm passing down to a female out of moose is outstanding. Right. On the other hand, you know, we've got some other dogs where the sire is great and we have a male out of that sire, but the female side of that dog isn't exactly what I'm going for. And so keeping a female out of that dog is less enticing to me because I don't I don't know what X chromosome cross I'm going to get out of that. Okay. So I. I tend to prioritize if I can males and mm-hmm. pretty potent males in our breeding program and then keeping really ideal structure, size and personality females to cross that with. Okay. Interesting. So I, the complementation, I try to, I try to complement really outstanding males with correct females. Okay. So it's the other way around. Okay. I like that. That's interesting. Um, and it makes sense. You know, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, was it, it was Robert Whaley. I think it was his, his females that he always kept and the males. He always brought new ones in, you know, just kind of reading, reading through snake, but it was always, he, he put more emphasis on his females than he did his males. So was, I like to, you know, just for breeders, I like to see what the methodology is. It's just something that I, I kind of poke around with every blue moon. Um, and we, you know, to be honest, we, we keep, our philosophy is to keep females uh-huh. and to bring, bring in males. 
Okay. Time, but there are as many selfish reasons for that as anything. Uh, <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> I want the female that has my affix on it. Right. I kind of laugh when I'm breeding and selling puppies. When I'm doing an elevage, I want dogs with my name on it, and the females are the ones that are, you know, putting the name on it. Right. I don't. I could breed moose to any other kennel affix in the country, and it's moose, but then some other kennel. Whereas if it's my female, you know, female to female to female, we're, we can build something generationally a little bit quicker that way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, um, so you're, you're keeping them. You just, but again, all right. So the way that I'm understanding it is you're keeping those females, but again, when you go out to look for it, you want to look for almost, I don't want to say guarantees in breed because you don't, you can't really get guarantees. But when you say prepotent, I mean, that's almost like a, it's almost surefire, you know, but from those right. breedings, you're keeping the females. Right. So okay. like a, a dog that throws better than himself consistently okay. has insane high bird drive, has all of the characteristics that I can't go without and passes those on almost every time, if not every time. And then I'll find a correct female that maybe doesn't have the same run right. or maybe have the same nose. But knowing that my male correct, you know, brings all that to the table in spades, I'll use a female to correct his confirmational weaknesses. Okay. Rather than having an on fire female that I have to go find a correct male with maybe a little less go. Gotcha. Kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. That's cool, man. I, uh, now, when did that decision making start? Was that, was that something you've kind of figured out over the last couple of years or how did, how did you get to that conclusion? I, I think kind of, you know, offhanded, that has always been in the back of people's minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, field trials honestly don't help that a whole lot because then you get the shiny penny mm-hmm. syndrome. Yep. You know, the dog's ear must be the best dog to breed to, and everybody does it, whether or not you have a complimentary female for him, right? But right. We, all, we all have males that we have, st- you know, stand out in our head, and that's the dog that I want in my pedigree or whatever. So it's been it's been a thing, but maybe not a data driven thing. Okay. And for us, it probably came into the forefront five years ago, six years ago. Okay. Something like that. When we had tests and we looked at her sire dog named Titus and everything that tests had produced with a certain lineage of males was just stellar. Right. So we used different males from the same lineage on three or four different litters. Okay. And they all out, you know, very nice dogs. Wow. So that's cool. That's cool. All right. Well, I, um, I want to, what, what was it that test passed down to moose? Like what was probably the most distinct characteristic you think? Her go. Okay. Her up and go, man. She, uh, she's 11 years old and she is gone by 7 a.m., 8 a.m. in the morning. She's a yard dog now, so she's gone by 8 a.m. and she's back at around dinner time to get fed. And more than 50% of the time, she'll come back with quail or a pheasant in her mouth or a rabbit or whatever. Wow. You know, she's going on an all-day hunt as an 11-year-old because she doesn't want to sit around the house. <laughs> That's cool. She's still, I mean, just catching it herself. Just Oh, hunt. yeah, yeah. She, she, she self-breaks in the morning and disappears all day and comes back to game. Wow. At least half the time. So, okay. But that trade drive she passed on to Moose in a big way. Right. Uh, 
Now, let me you you mentioned rabbits and 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 fur and feather. You just mentioned it. Would you consider EB's a versatile breed? Would 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 you consider that in that classification? Oh, I just listened to Craig Koshik's East and West. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that episode. That's actually my favorite podcast right now. It, he's doing a great job with that. Uh-huh. Um, so they're west of the Rhine dogs, right? So they're not versatile dogs as far as what you would think of, you know, like a, a Navda style dog. Right? They can they can do it absolutely. You know, I've got I've got a young pup out of Moose that I just got a video of. The guys in Colorado goose hunting, retrieving geese back back to the handler right and they've got the ability to waterfowl fur and feather um but they're really built for upland game right. you know it's so like there was there was an eb who got her versatile champion this year um in navda so it, but in my opinion they're versatile because of their personality mm-hmm. not because of that particular ability if i can put it that way so that they want to they want to work for you so badly that if you send them into a volcano, they'll go into a volcano if they think there's a bird in there. Right. You know, okay. that, but that's their mentality. It's not it's not swimming for swimming's sake most of the time. It's swimming because you want them to swim. Mm-hmm. And that, see, I, I was I was thinking about that, man, because I see, you know, EB's in, in, in NAVDA, and I'm like, is that just looking at the history, and, and Craig and I talk all the freaking time, and I've, I've listened to that particular episode probably two or three times myself, and so I thought about it, and I was just like, uh, I, I just, I've always envisioned them as specialist dogs, and that research that they had done just kind of confirmed it for me, you know, like, I've always right. seen Britney's as special, um, as a, a specialist type of dog, um, you know, yeah, but I, I think it's the same, like, I had a gentleman ask me today, um, are pointers um, considered versatile, right? And I, and in my head, I was like, I mean, it, no, absolutely. They're, they're not what, you know, what, what uh, short hairs and things like that were bred upon, right? Like they're not, they weren't used for that. But could I get the dog to go retrieve fur if I just really wanted it to? Absolutely. Just because they want to work work with you. But see, right. that's that I, I think there needs to be that distinction. Like, okay, when we say versatile, can I get any dog to do that? Yeah, I can, I can go get a, a border collie to go flush birds for me. Does that make it a flushing dog? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so. There's there, there, guys in our breed who will swear to you they're a versatile dog. And by way of them being able to do a lot, yeah, they do. They they can do a lot, but is that what they're bred for? They, they don't have the coat to go into thirty five degree water. You know, they just don't have it. They don't have the body mass to, to break ice consistently. You know, stuff like that. They're just not built that way. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, they can manage in reasonable, you know, things. I um, you know, I I I like the dogs. I've just always pictured them in you know in in more upland settings. Um, and it, I guess it kind of you know baffled me a little bit to see see them in Navda. But if if there's a versatile champion in Navda, hey, so be it. You know, 
Um, I'm also a bit of a traditionalist and I, I, I stand firm on my ground <laughs> a lot of the times. So a dog that I'm like, that shouldn't be there. You know, I, I get a little, uh, uh, what they say, uh, crotchety about dogs that I think should not be considered versatile. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I'm but like, think- God damn it. The dog, ain't, <laughs> the dog doesn't do this. Like, right. Oh no. I- in all fairness, I think a lot of dogs, at least from our breed, that end up in NAVDA stuff, it's a matter of convenience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the venue we, we trial in is the UKC. They are basically Midwest and Southeast right. only. Um, a lot of their pointing dog stuff was driven by our breed and setting up trials around foot, you know, foot walking trials, foot hunting stuff for our breed. Right. Um, and AKC doesn't offer a ton of foot stuff yet or walking stuff yet though it's getting there now what talk about a UKC um, like a day at a UKC trial like what does that look like uh, typically all hands on deck everybody's got a job to do (laughs) and and you're on it but you mean more like what is what is it what is a UKC field trial what are they looking for Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah so there's they run liberated and wild trials um, okay. And the open class, there are solo runs and brace runs. Like to get your grand champion of the field, you have to have five wins under five different judges, under with at least one win of each of the four varieties. So one liberated bird solo run, one liberated bird brace run, one wild bird solo run, and one wild bird brace run, and then a fifth of anything, but under a fifth different judge. Okay. So that's that's you know that's the peak of the ukc field trial system is to get your grand champion in the field um but they go out liberated liberated trials it's supposed to be like two to four birds put out in what is deemed to be a 15 minute run obviously that's totally dog dependent if you get a closer working dog that's 50 yards off of your boot mm-hmm. they're, they're going to hit two to three birds if you get a dog that covers you know at 250 to 600 they're going to get maybe 10 birds Right. Right. In 15 minutes. So it just kind of depends on, on the dog and, and the handler and, and the bird planting and stuff like that. But in, so in liberated, it's shoot to retrieve. So the, the handler doesn't shoot or carry that there's gunners assigned for each run. And the dog in the open class is expected to be steady to release. Uh, it's supposed to be until the judge tells you to release that can be a determination up to the judge. I've had judges, you know, if the birds hit the ground and my dog's getting ready to go, send my dog and then turn around and ask the judge if that was okay. Some will say yes. Some guys want your dog to stand there for 30 seconds to display steadiness. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some of each, and it's kind of judge to judge, but then a retrieve to hand. Okay. And a retrieve's not super – it's not super tightly judged for the most part, you know, and, and that comes from the – the field trials in Europe as well, where a retrieve to hand means they go and get the bird and they get it back to your hand. It doesn't mean it's a direct line like Nav retrieves. Uh, it doesn't mean it's super stylish, head held high, you know, curling around behind you and sitting at your foot and presenting the bird. Right. That's not all required, though. If you do it, you get brownie points. Okay. So, it's an extra incentive, but I mean, that makes right. sense. So it, it now with shoot to retrieve here, matter of fact, because I'm going to do a couple of them this year, um, you can at least take, I think, a step, you know, a step forward or step to the side 
um, to get the, the, the bird from the dog. So it, it, you know, and that's not even looked down upon. Um, obviously in, in the retriever trials, I mean, it's gotta be crystal clear, clean, but it, it sounds to me like y'all are, are y'all have got some pretty high standards in there. Now, where are you guys going for, for wild bird trials? Like that's a, that's a, a large promise. <laughs> right. So let's see, two years ago, we hosted nationals at our regional club in Iowa and we had 75 80 dogs, something like that a day uh-huh. running. And we did two days of wild trials and then we did two days of liberated trials. But I, there was either zero or one dog that didn't have bird contact. Um, in Iowa. Okay. Yeah. In Iowa. Okay. Iowa. So yeah. typically your wild trials are South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, Illinois. Okay. Uh, and then Georgia will typically do a quail trial. Okay. Cool. Um, that's the one in December, actually, that I was telling you about. December 12 and 13, I think, or 13 and 14. Man, if you if y'all come down here, man, you got to let me know. I want to see that. I, I will be down there with Moose. It's, a, it's, an open, it's an open class only, so no gun class dogs. And it's braces only, so they're only running with with another dog in order to have enough bird numbers, um, and to not have to double cover ground on wild birds. Okay. But yeah, but it'll be a, it'll be a fun trial. It's a good place. It's a good trial. I've been down there before. Two two years ago, that I, I went and ran down there. Okay. But it's a place that reestablished a wild population over the last decade or so. Um, and now they have enough of a wild population that they can host a wild trial, which is pretty cool. That's cool. That's cool. We, uh, you know, that's the, that's the way to go about it, man. I, I, if ever I could run in a wild bird field trial, I would thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. I guess I need to get to like the continental or something like that one day, but, um, testing your dog on the wild birds, man, that's, the pinnacle, right? Like that, that's the best way to go about um, looking and evaluating on those dogs. Now, is there like a, 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 is there a difference in intensity that you might notice from your dog? Um, when you, when, when, when they're going out on wild birds versus liberated? No. Okay. Well, with, with, with my dog, no. Um, you do see it from time to time in dogs if they've been overworked on liberated birds. Okay. They haven't had enough wild bird contact. You know, what typically what happens is they'll be super cautious, you know, almost not maybe cautious is the wrong word, almost roading into the bird if it's if they're used to liberated birds because mm-hmm. they can get closer and pinpoint it. And then in a wild trial, they'll start, you know, really cautiously creeping in. But a dog that's well, you know, that's fully broke, they're going to stop and lock up on scent cone, not on specific location of the bird. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. I, I always wonder about that, man. Like if dogs ever get to, uh, they start getting hip to the differences in birds, you know, the differences in types of birds. Like, oh, okay, this liberated bird can't really get up, get away as fast as a wild bird can. Um and I'm always curious how that how that translates, but you know, a good one is is going to be a good one, and 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 they prove themselves through and through. Now, moving on into the um, the 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 aspect of field trials, you guys, of course, have that relationship with George Hickox, and and I really want to get more into 
you know, how that's developed and, and where you see the benefit of leaving um, Moose with him and, and what the updates are, are for him right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what are the benefits? Uh, in my opinion, George is one of, if not the best trainer in the country right now for pointing dogs. Uh, and to be able to have him have hands on my dog for an extended period of time can only help my dog. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as much as me and Moose work together, we know each other and, and we do pretty well together. I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm not getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to train and run other guys' dogs. And there's a reason for that, right? right? There's a reason George is. So, but beyond just the sheer fact that George has the ability to do things that I can't, it's also, you know, the exposure that he can get. So where I'm at in Pennsylvania right now, I can't do patterning work. I don't have a four wheeler out here. Mm-hmm. I don't have huge fields out here. I can do bird work. Um, but even that it's hard with where I'm at too. So one of the things that Moose develops, this will lead better into why George has them actually. Um, one of the things Moose developed last year is he had, he had over a thousand birds shot over him guiding. Oh, wow. Uh, and he got so used to the Mongolian roosters that are, you know, too fat to fly, basically. So they mm-hmm. run until they have to go up. That he just had made a self-determination in his head. And because we had paying customers, I didn't have the option of letting birds run out the field. Right. Is he would point and then he would start to creep to make sure he could be on the right side of that bird so they couldn't run away from us. Um, and he had he had done that so many times that even when we were in other situations, he would want to get to the right side of the bird and be able to locate it, not just the scent cone, but locate the bird, um, which is just not a steady enough dog for open class to win. Right. Most no, of the time. They, they got to stop right then and there. If you hit every bird on a run on the right angle, then you might get lucky. But yeah, the whole idea of hitting the scent cone and then finding the bird without busting it. Right. It's just something that I needed cleaned up and I, for whatever reason, I couldn't get it done with him. You know, he, he had gotten so used to me allowing him to do that because people were paying, you know, 250 bucks for a three and a half hour hunt mm-hmm. that, that he knew his job was, you know, so things that I enjoyed. And he's holding Hang on one second. Say, you j- Josh, you just broke up that last part. Say that last, like, two sentences that you were just talking about. Oh, so, like, the first two weeks that George had to do it, he would call me every other day or every third day to just scold me. Okay. You know, very little reinforcement. It'll ruin it. You should never have reinforcement. Um, and I was like, I know. Because I couldn't get him back out of it this spring. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I needed for whatever reason, I couldn't get the dog out of it. Um, right. And three, three weeks out of the margin, it's totally gone. That, that's worth it right there. Um, but also patterning work. Moose runs this huge year, so 250 yards big, which is pretty um, it, It's probably a little big for some folks, for sure. And they want to put on dogs. Uh, can you hear me buddy 
Yeah. You're coming in and out. Let me see something. Huh. Coming in and out. Say something real quick. I'm right here. Perfect. Okay. I don't know what that was, but you were like fading in and out real quick. Okay. <laughs> I hate that. I didn't want to want you to get too no. far into a row, man. <laughs> No, you're good. I'm glad you said something. Okay, um, let's let's start back over. <laughs> One more time, starting to, uh, about those first two, those first couple of weeks. Okay, yeah. So I would get a phone call from George, pretty rudely, holding me about variable reinforcement in my training with Moose when he was guiding, and I knew it. I just i i didn't I didn't feel like I could stop in the field when I had paying customers, you know. So I let him get away with too much. Um, and he knew that he could get away with it with me at that point. So about three weeks out, there was just totally gone. He's, he's hitting scent cone and he's locking up. You can go make a cup of coffee. Somebody will be there not having put a foot down and take a foot up. Okay. So right there was totally worth it for sending him out there. And then the other reason that I sent him out to George was Moose hunted about 250 yards, uh, which is pretty big for an EV, bigger than some folks who want to put a dog like. Um, but that being said, George is putting into him a 10 to two pattern. So he's, you know, casting left and right a lot better than what I could do without having a four wheeler or a horse where I'm at. Right. Um, he's also building in a go command to send him out to 700 yards. Really? So once, once I've hit that second or third bird and I don't want any more bird contact, I can give him a, a third whistle and just send him and just send him flying. Yeah. That's just, cool. Okay. Yeah out of the bird field, break away, and then call him back, you know, so he's not out of judgment or whatever, but to, to take him away from any unnecessary bird contact. Huh. Okay. I would like to know how he does that. <laughs> I would really like to know how he does that. Okay. I mean, because it's, it's actually really smart. I mean, just 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 get him out of there, period. Just let him run. And 700 yards, I mean, but he is out there on the prairies, man. Like, of course he can stretch out. And that's still that's still a, a huge run even for an EB, man. They're not that big. And 700 yards, that's that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, he's, he's one of a few dogs probably in the country right now that can truly hit that mark. You know, there's there's a few others, not, not in our kennel, but there's a few others that can maybe get there. Um but yeah, it's it's pretty cool to have a dog like that and to have somebody like George who can build that into your dog for you. So Okay. Okay. And that and that's that's the update for right now. That's kind of what, what he's up there working on with him. Um Okay. So after Moose, do you, you, you got any other young prospects that you're thinking about? Yeah, we do. We Dad may have touched on a couple of them last week, but we've got a niece of Moose. Mm-hmm. Her call name is Goat. She's got the same kind of run that Moose had as a puppy. Just incredibly bird-driven. She's already out there at 200-ish yards, you know, as a 15-month dog um, with all the tenacity in the world. So she's she's one that we have high hopes for as far as breaking her really well and getting her ready for field trials probably next fall. So she didn't get to hunt much last year because she was just too tiny. Mm-hmm. So really focusing on wild birds this year and then starting in the spring start to break down you know the steadiness work and stuff like that for fall 2021 okay but so we're we're stoked about her we've got our 
22-year-old young male from France that dad was telling you about out of Jet do Grand Capricorn. Mm-hmm. Dog's name is Neo. This will be his first trial season this fall, so I'm excited to see what he has. I haven't got to work with him in a while. He was he was out with Bob Burchett for about four months um, this past spring in Missouri, getting getting some some handling and work done there. So okay. So those two, and then the other, the next three that we're excited about are either twelve weeks old or on the way. Okay. So. Okay. That's cool. I uh, I'm I'm definitely trying to uh, you know keep that in play, it, it, keep that kind of in mind. Um, you know, I, I'm really interested in, in the impact that you guys are leaving here in the States, though, because, I mean, obviously there's not a whole lot of EB kennels anyway. You know, what do you I know I asked this to to your to your dad, but I would like to know where you think uh, the Trinity Kennels impact is for for the, the Bretons. Like what is what do you think it is for you guys? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we have a special opportunity um, in the current world we live in. The breed is really just now starting to gain kind of name recognition. Uh-huh. That, that comes with more people being exposed to the dogs. It comes with the opportunity to do podcasts like this um, or getting out to different parts of the country and guiding with our dogs. Uh, it's also NAVDA, AKC, folks getting into other venues where there are other pointing dog folks that haven't been introduced to the breed before and just starting to see what they are and see what their ability is and, you know, start to fall in love with the idea of a smaller dog, you know, with plenty of go for a foot hunter, but in a smaller package that makes a little bit easier pet in the house, maybe. Okay. So that's kind of, the, you know, the, the niche of the dog selling market as it were right now. As far as impact on the breed that we're aiming for, I'm not going to say we're going to have it because, you know, I don't want to jinx us or whatever and all of that. <laughs> you believe in that crazy jinx stuff, man. <laughs> you, you talk, you, you talk enough hot air and it comes back at you. So I, I think it's possible. <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm one of them people, man. I will, I try to bite my tongue on some things, man. I'm, I'm one of them crazy superstitious, uh, superstitious folks down here. I get it from my grandmama. <laughs> <laughs> So trust me, I get that. Yeah. So, but as far as Mark on the breed, one of the things we've really spent a lot of time with, and this goes into kind of, you know, the coefficient of inbreeding and and trying to work some line breeding back into it, Mm -hmm. um, is there really isn't, there really isn't good examples of kennels that have foundational lines in our breed over here where you get a dog and you can say that's a Trinity dog, Mm -hmm. right? Um, or fifth, sixth generation Trinity dogs. Most of the guys in the field trials, including us until recently, quite honestly, were first or second generation dogs. Um, hadn't really established anything. And part of that comes with lack of consistency. Okay. A lot of that guy's got a good dog and we've got a good dog, so let's have a litter. Um, so we're trying to break away from that that motif as much as possible without getting too risky, maybe. Okay. Um, but, you know, these are... I'll use the Alpadree line really quick as an example, but there's a multiple-time grand champion in France named Matt. His son, Go, was the same thing. His son, Laos, was also a multiple-time grand champion who has bred to many 
produced a dog named Ray, who was multiple-time grand champion, produced Titus, who was Tess's father, who produced Moose. And so that's just one example. But we've got it from multiple sides, kind of all coming back through that dog named Minnie. So Minnie's, Minnie has three sons that we have in our breeding program right now, back in our generation. And the goal to be able to establish something consistently where it's not, let's see what we get with dog A and dog B, but these dogs bred linearly have produced awesome stuff and allowed a kennel name to continue to grow and build. So we're trying to bring that to the breed of just recognition and consistency in what you can do if, if you pull things tighter instead of spreading out all the time. Okay. All right. I liked it. Um, and it's, it's interesting you, you, you say that like, and you and I, I'm, I'm supposed to be working on a commission for you. Um, and I, I'm actually starting that pretty soon. I'm excited about it. Um, but what you're talking about is essentially artwork. That's where, that's what came to mind. Like you're, 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 when you say, you know, leaving a marker or, or having that distinct Trinity dog, you're putting a signature on it. And I like the idea that you guys are focused on, on basically creating your own lane, really, you know, exactly. and, and, and yep. making your own standard in a standard that still fits to what's in France, but still really creating that like you guys in 10, 15, 20 years, it'll be known. This is a Trinity dog. Like I like that way of thinking, you know, yeah, absolutely. And we're trying, you know, we're trying harder than ever right now to bring back third, fourth generation. Like the, one of the young dogs, the, the one that's 12 weeks old, her call name is Red. She actually wasn't bred by us, but she's bred out of a son of Moose and a half sister to Moose. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's Trinity dogs all the way back. And then we're bringing her back into our kennel, even though we didn't own the female. Um, so there'll be a generation gap, but it's going to be ostensibly when she has puppies, it'll be sixth generation Trinity. You know, we're starting to be able to establish generation over generation over generation and really evaluate, are we going somewhere or did we just make a nice puppy? Right. Right. Which obviously you guys are going somewhere because the national Elevage just told you that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you feel like you could take it again? I think so. Yeah. It's so the dogs we have, the answer is yes. It's so objective, though, with with the judge you get. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I love the French, but they are predictable. <laughs> if, if, there's a kennel, if there's a kennel with a couple of attractive women in it. That's where they're going. Uh, um, but also, you know, just judges look for different things. Right. There's, not to call out any dog man, so I won't, but there's a certain trend in our breed right now to have a super steep stop, right? Almost like a pointer stop, almost inverted where from really? the cranium down to the, the plane, the muzzle, it almost goes inward a little. Really? And ours is supposed to be almost like a ski slope down, right? They're supposed to, it's, it's not supposed to be straight from forehead to tip of nose, but there's supposed to be a slope to it. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. But some judges right now are so enamored with how that head looks that they're awarding that instead of faulting it. So depending on, you know, that's what I meant by depending on the judge. Right. That could be rewarded or not. And our dogs don't have that. Um, And we specifically won't breed to the bloodlines that present that. 
Yeah, that um, that I that looks funny, man. I didn't think that was a, a regular. I didn't even know people wanted that in a dog. Number one, in 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 the EBs, but I didn't know that was a thing people even worked towards. Huh. Yeah, was, there was there was a dog who won national best of breed that had it, and ultimately what happened is a bunch of people bred to him, fell in love with the look of those puppies because he was national best of breed. This is this is what I'm talking about—the shiny penny syndrome, right? Um, right. And so now there's a there's a whole array of that bloodline, and he's not the only dog out of that bloodline that carries it. But there's just a fascination with it right now, um, and it doesn't make them any better or worse dogs, but conformationally, it's not ideal. So, but it just depends on the judge if that's what they want or or not. Okay. Okay. Now, speaking of shiny penny syndrome, do you see a lot of customers with that, with, with EBs? Like, how do you determine who gets, you know, is there a determination? Like, is there screening? How does that work? There is a level of screening. Yeah. Um, somebody who wants a couch potato doesn't get a dog from us. Right. You know, they have to be, they have to be outdoorsy. Okay. They don't have to. Um, my reason for that is, I believe that this kind of dog, you know, if somebody falls in love with their dog and they're a hiker or a mountain biker or whatever, there's a better chance of them becoming an upland hunter if they have a dog and maybe at some point they feel like they should let the dog do what it was made to do. Okay. Than if they never had an upland dog at all. Right. right? So my my ultimate hope is that a few of the people who are you know hikers or whatever and they want a dog to go go out with them into the mountains or camping or whatever might give it a shot because their dog wants to do it, you know, or well, that guy might be out there camping in the right kind of grouse woods. Right. And that dog go on point. Absolutely. You know, that that's a, that's an easy sale right there. That's a super easy sale. You know, right. you, you mess around and, and, and go camping out here and, and get to point a covey of quail. Like you can't beat that. <laughs> right. And ultimately, uh, yeah, we want to, we want to create more upland hunters as much if not more than we want to sell puppies you know it's, right that's where your future clientele is but that's also how the sport keeps growing and and is sustainable let me let me ask you this and if you don't mind me putting you in the middle of a semi research project that i'm working on right now can i put you on the spot real quick go for it man do we this is kind of off the the topic of breeding and stuff but it just popped in my head are, are field trials going like do you think field trials are fading away like i'm having to answer that question and i would like to know from a couple of different people i don't sorry i don't think they're fading away personally um mm-hmm. i think if we get people into upland hunting field trials will always have a place right i my fear is the cost you know, the condition that keeps young people from getting into it. You know, I was reading an article, on, I think on Facebook or a post or something on Facebook mm-hmm. about the decline in young hunters. And I didn't respond to it, but my immediate thought was, if I hadn't been born into it and had free dogs as access until I could get my own dog, like, I'm still paying $1,000 a month in student loan debt. There's no way I would have time or money for a bird dog and a gun. Right. Nine yards until I'm out of debt. Right. And, you know, and that generation didn't have, they didn't have the, 
the immediate debt out of high school or college that we have. Right. And so it's, it's an easy, easier transition for them. You know, that's something that I think about, man. Um, like you, I don't think field trials are going anywhere just because I believe human beings are inherently competitive. So if it, if it means if I'm going to get a dog, it's a bird dog and it can go do, you know, go and point birds at some point in time, somebody going to get to talk trash to somebody else. And right. there, there in of itself, you have yourself a field trial. <laughs> so I don't think they're going anywhere. I, you know, especially the various kinds of trials um, that are available around the world, right? Like there's they, so many types of them. I see them growing, but I'm having to, um, you know, work on an article. And I, I just really wanted to ask somebody else that's in a different breed group doing a different type of field trialing. And, and, and I wonder if there's any kind of similar sentiments in those circles. I think probably I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. I think probably five years ago, that may have been a sentiment in our breed and in our venue to, to some extent. Mm-hmm. But in the last five years, like I would say we're probably 50% under the age of 50 right now. Okay, cool. Which is pretty good considering most demographics for hunting and field trialing, I think. Uh, but on top of that, we're, our kennel is part of something that's just starting called the Ethanol Breton Breeders Alliance. Um, and it's, it's alliance to hold breeders to a higher standard requires competition before you breed your dog. Okay. To prove they are in the field, to get them confirmed so that they're within the breed standard, to get hips done, to get DNA tested, all of that, just to raise the level of what we're producing and hold each other, you know, to a higher standard as opposed to falling in love with the dog in our kennel kind of thing. Right. Um, of the five people that are in that, of the five kennels that are in that alliance, only two people are over the age of 50. Really? So That's there's dope. Four, there's four kennels with, you know, primary owners that are under the age of 50, which is a good start, you know, for, for building something for the future. And if we're holding each other to that standard, our clients are starting to come into that standard. I've got, I think I've got five dogs in NAVDA with handlers under the age of 40 right now. Okay. Yeah. Five dogs in UKC with, dogs under the or with guys under the age of 40 and these are primarily first time dog owners or first time field trialers at least so we're seeing a resurgence at least in our venue of you know young middle-aged guys and gals not just guys guys and gals getting into it um at a higher and higher level which i think is really awesome i, I really think so too man um i think that the, the dynamics change is it's such a I think when people ask that question, I think there is the understanding of the old way of field trialing, right? Like I also think the platform and the venue is changing. So it's, it's getting to be much more inviting to, you know, guys our age, right? Like, and then most of us, we, like you said, we have these dogs, you don't want to let them down and they should be able to go out and do what they're naturally called towards, you know? So why would, field trials be going anywhere i just think the i just think the platform is just going to change man especially even after this whole virus thing like what is that going to do to the platform of, of of field trialing for any breed right 
Absolutely. No, I agree with you hundred percent. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to see what happens. We, I do think, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm listening. I, was gonna, I think it's interesting that it, it feels like it feels in a way like the church conversation that I have a lot mm-hmm. is, is the church in the U S dying, you know, classical music in the church in the U S dying, you know, all of these kinds of questions. And they, those questions all come from, the older generation. Right. It's not bad, but it's because everything is starting to look and feel different than what is their normal. Right. And so now they're concerned that they're losing their normal. And I think in some, in some ways for field trialers that have been doing it for 40, 50 years, that's part of it is a, a new normal to use a COVID term, I guess. But, um, a new normal is on the horizon with younger handlers, younger dog owners, folks getting into it that haven't been in it before. And stuff like that, and right. I, I think it's great, but it's, it is going to look a little different. I, 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 I like that, man. Um, you know, it's it's just people talk about carrying on the traditions and things like that of these dogs, and in order to carry carry on, um, it's just got to look a little different, right? Like we we have access to different things. Um, somebody was was even talking to me about. Um, you know, how technology in and of itself, like the use of, of GPS collars now has, has changed the decision-making um, that they're having to think about for field trials, right? Because now I can, I got Garmin watches, right? So we don't know what this person is doing is cheating and things like that. Like the world is changing. Technology's changing. People are changing. Dog owners are changing. So that's inherently going to shift what field trials look like. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's funny, you know, guys now or guys five years from now will have tech ways of cheating. Uh huh. 15 years ago, good handlers had quiet ways of cheating. Just, just the same, you mm-hmm. know, it's just a different age. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's going to evolve with us. Um, and, and the dogs will too. I mean, um, I just like I'm now that I, I've I've gotten a chance to speak with you and your dad pretty extensively, man. Like, I'm just interested in, in this next year's you know Elevage and in in what the pursuit and the goal is there. Um, you know, you guys have come on as a sponsor to the podcast, but I don't believe in in that just being a random coincidence. You see what I'm saying? Like the conversations that we're having, I want to be able to continue to have because just based on the type of work that y'all have done thus far, I would think that you guys are going to be a, a, a stepping stone in the betterment of the uh, EB, you know, just listening to you guys. I really think that y'all are going to make a serious mark and I want to be here to say, I knew you. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. It's, it's been fun getting to know you so far, you know, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully we're, we're able to make a mark and not just a mark, but a good one for the breed. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Yep. 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 So uh, one of my last questions, man, one, one of the, uh, I guess thinking when we think about buyers and the demand and things like that, where do you think consumer interest for EBs is moving? Um, do you see more and more people getting them? Is it kind of, you know, is the interest growing? And what should people be looking for when they when they are thinking about the dogs? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Is interest growing? Yes, it is. Um, 
I would say interest in the breed in the last three years has tripled, if not more. Okay. Um, which is fantastic for the breed. Uh, it's also, it's also, you know, a statement about the marketing guys have been able to do through field trials and word of mouth and, and hunting with folks and, and things like that. And so kudos to any EB guy or, or gal or owner that's, that's getting out with their dogs and showcasing them. Um, but what should people be looking for? Things like that. That was the other part of your question, right? Yep. I get way too many deposit holders that call in and say, Hey, I would like a tricolored female. <laughs> and my response is, okay, you're like number 18 on the list for that. Right. How do you, how do you think about the best female out of the litter? I right. want to try color. It's just the wrong way to go about it. You know, yes, these dogs are, are pets. Yes, they're family dogs. They have that personality. And that's part of the reason we love them and we have them. But they're also ultimately upland dogs, right? They're bird dogs. And so if you're buying a bird dog, man, buy, buy the best bird dog you can. If right. you have a style of hunting, you know, we've got dogs that are 50 to 100 yard dogs. We've got dogs like Moose that are 250 and now working up to a go command at 600 plus yards. Right. What kind of hunting are you doing? What kind of terrain do you cover? Are you in the grouse woods? Are you in the prairies of North Dakota, Montana? Are you down in the pines in the Southeast? You know, what are you hunting and what does your dog style need to be? Right. And start there and then ask, you know, then ask the next question of, okay, well, what, what gender, you know, there's also a lot of misnomers that we get, you know, I've heard males are aggressive. That can be true. <laughs> but in our, yeah. in, in our breed, that's really not a trait. Right. You know, as far as my opinion is concerned, if you're going to have one dog, I would always have a male if it's an EB. Right. Because males are, males are people driven and females are place driven in our breed. You know, really? So, females, so, okay. So how did you figure that out? Like elaborate on that some. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, a good example of this is Tess, Moose's mom. I, I got her when she was eight weeks old. She moved into my college house with me. We had a routine every, wasn't the healthiest routine, but it, it was what it was. Every morning we had a back deck. I would sit on the back deck and I would have a dip and I would have a cup of coffee and I would read the local newspaper and she would sit on the deck with me. If a bird or squirrel came in the yard, she'd run after it and run back. Well, we were there for six months before I graduated and she went back to live with my parents when I went to Jamaica. Day two, they didn't, my parents didn't tell me this, but day two, she got lost. Dad broke her out of the kennel and she disappeared just gone day seven they told me that they they just found Tess, and i was like what what do you mean just found her well she's been gone for about five days mm. Tess had gone they they live in the country so Tess had gone about a mile up the road and had found a deck that looked just like the deck on my college house and she was just sitting on the deck waiting for me to come out wow so somebody she, told she, y'all that or y'all went so they went and saw it no, she like she would come up there every morning, and on morning five, the lady called and said, "Hey, are you guys missing a dog?" Huh? And my, my mom said, "Yeah." Have you seen her? And she said, "Yeah." For the last five days, she's come up to our deck every morning, and she just sits on the deck. So, wow. Okay. That's the easiest, most clear example of how place oriented she was, and females tend to be. And when you take that into a hunting dog you're going to have multiple dogs it's not as big a deal you know if you want to breed obviously you need females but when you take a dog to a brand new hunting territory mm -hmm. it tends to take a female a little a couple more clicks 
to really break out and hunt their pattern and get away from get away from you because they're worried about place. Mm-hmm. Whereas a male, you break them out of the box, and as long as you're in that, they're going to where they're at as long as you're there. Right. Okay. That's interesting, man. I I don't know when you said it. I was like, huh, what is that? You know, like what, how, how does that work? And that's been, you've seen that over a, a number of your dogs, um, over oh, the yeah. years. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's, that's cool, man. Um, but, oh, but we were, we were talking about consumer questions though, man, like day to day conversations outside of confirmation, are you guys kind of fielding any other, any other questions from, from potential clients? Yeah. People want to know how big do your dog, you know, like I was saying, how big does your dogs run? How do your dogs run? You know, do they retrieve naturally? Are they good water dogs? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm 75 year old guy and I only hunt preserves and they're about, you know, hundred yard long runs. I don't need a dog that runs big. Those tend to be the kinds of questions we get. Right. Um, most of the time and really helping fit the right litter to the right person. Cause every litter that we produce has a goal and those are all similar dogs. They, they oftentimes have different end goals. Okay. Right? So we've got a litter on the ground with a dog named Zar. Uh, Zar is the father and Rhea is the mother. They're going to be your closer working dogs. Mm-hmm. They're also going to be bigger dogs than like some of the other litters we produce. Cause Zar is a tank and Rhea is a big female. Right. So if you want a 50 to 100 yard dog that can just pound through, you know, primaflora rose and all that stuff, that's the dog to get. If you want a dog to go cover Montana, not the dog to get. Okay. Okay. So just trying to help aim folks, you know, a little to the left, a little to the right, help course correct, you know, misnomers as far as female versus male, things like that. Oh, I get it. I should, I should mention this. I get a ton of, do you, do you remove the dew claws? Right. Okay. Yeah. That's been a point of contention. What, it, what about that? That was another do you, going back to translate. Say that. Still there? Yeah. I'm here. Can you say that one more time? Well, going, yeah. So we don't remove the dew claws going back, you know, to translations like we talked about earlier from French to English in the French standard, it says remove back dew claws. Mm-hmm. When they translated it to English, they said, remove dew claws. Um, so about 10 years ago, they went back and looked at it and they said, no, it doesn't say dew claws. It says back dew claws. So since then, we've stopped removing front dew claws. Okay. For the sake of the dog, you know, with the data that shows arthritis, joint problems, stuff like that, if you take them out. Okay. So, now, I, I was going to ask you, you, you actually answered the question, what what were kind of some of the effects of taking of removing them? Um Cause there's always that, that question of whether you should or should not. I know my pointer doesn't have his, um, I don't think he has back or front, but I know he doesn't have them. Um, and I, and my lab still has his, you know, I always wonder just on an evolutionary level, do dogs even still need them, you know? Yeah. So what they're used for, um, and for sure in a sporting dog and a, in a field dog, Mm-hmm. right is they're used to help a dog turn right so what they do is long term they help prevent arthritis up in the in the shoulder joints and the elbow joints because uh-huh. they've got that inside toe to turn on right it'd be like it'd be like cutting off your big toe and telling you to go learn how to dunk oh right? okay works the same way you could jump still but you couldn't have the same you know effect and the other thing it does when you when you 
cut out the dewclaw is it's tied to a tendon that runs up to the elbow and that tendon snaps back up into the elbow and over time you can end up with you know tendonitis up there and stuff like that okay so it's just health wise it's a benefit to the dog long term to keep them in okay yes you can rip them and then you have to take them out you know that happens but in in the near term at least the idea of providing a little bit longer joint and ligament health in your dog is is worth it for us and that's why we do it okay okay um this is my last question man i'm not gonna keep asking you because i I, i'm I'm, i've got a hundred of them but i do you know i'm I'm very interested in in you guys' story are you now are you as is into delmar smith as your dad was i am not okay okay I, uh, we got, we, we spent some time talking on that one on the other podcast. Well, I, I'm curious if you had a follow up to that. And it, it's not that I'm not because of any reason against it. Mm-hmm. I grew up with it. Um, I just have had so much success with the Hickox method over the last three years that I've, I've pretty much gone straight to that. Okay. Right now, I, something you guys talk about, but you have to read every dog so individually. So I use a little bit of everything right. depending on the, yeah okay so we're 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 very much so alike in that way (laughs) yeah absolutely um now are you guys primarily using hickox method at the kennel or or or, you know how does that work because i like i said we spent some time talking about delmar's uh you know his work and things but what what would you say you use primarily is it hickox yeah, we primarily use the Hickox. Okay. And the reason for that is the, the dog, you know, the dog mentality part mm-hmm. of what George does or mm-hmm. his reasoning for it of teaching a dog to love to learn from an early age with the clicker training and stuff like that. And also, I just, I, to be honest with you, I got sick of training a dog's steadiness level to a new level every time we got to the next accomplishment, right? Mm-hmm. So steady steady to shot now i've got his gun title well now i have to go back and teach steady to release right right? and you basically are starting over for you know for better or worse right with the hickox method using pointing drills with a low board and stuff i can train a dog at six months to be steady to release um if it's a dog you know a good quick learner Mm -hmm. and i don't have to go back through steadiness drills every time I'm, i'm trying to attain the next level i can just use the same drill and make them stand a little longer because they know what the low board is. And for me, that just has made a world of difference um, in that stuff. But that being said, they say don't let dogs chase this, that, or the other thing. Make sure your dog's on a check cord. I've got this dog, Pete, with me right now. Mm-hmm. Who He was with Dad until he was nine months. And Dad, I think you mentioned it, he was frustrated with him. He just couldn't figure him out. Uh, and I took him out here, and we have done no obedience work no woe board, no crate work, no corrections whatsoever. Um, and just running and I, I'll sprint with him during his field drills. Like I will run as fast as I can in hunting boots through the prairie just to build his run and his drive. Mm-hmm. And he's in about three weeks now, he's no longer at my side. He's now running at about 60 yards. Oh, wow. Which isn't perfect yet, but it's a lot better than what he was. Yeah. And he's using his nose. He's not pointing, you know, he's, he's putting birds up, but he's using his nose and he's going and finding them with confidence. Right. And and so the pointing will come. I mean, he'll, he'll figure out to stop. 
yeah, he will, but that's not something that you would find in, in the system that we use. You know, they'd be like, well, you've got a 10-month-old dog that you're letting flush birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he needed to build independence, you know, right. and confidence. So it's, when I say I use Hickok, it's, it's my foundational training methodology that, that I like to use. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll put in, you know, I'll put in some of the Mo Lindley Gibbons West stuff yep. uh, in a dog. I'll put some of the Smith stuff into into a dog, depending on the dog and what they need and what they can handle. Right. Well, and, and, and that's what it's about, man. Like I said, I, I, I've always seen working a dog kind of like going to school, right? You just, you, you've got these resources, these various types of teachers. They all teach something different, but they're all trying to get you to the same goal. Um, so we're very, very much so alike. And, and I have a foundational type deal and then kind of everything that I use around it. So, you know, that's, that, that's, that's good, man. Um, I actually want to, at some point, one of these days, I want to buy that Hickox DVD, um, just to watch it, you know, and see how, see how it goes and, and, and all of that stuff. And he's got that dog, uh, Chelsea's Thunderbolt. Have you seen that dog by chance? Yes, I have. What do you think about it? That dog is incredibly impressive. Okay. Okay. What, um, what where, 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 where did you, where, give me the details on that, on the, on that story. Uh, I went to a clinic in Illinois three summers ago now, two, uh-huh. whatever it was, 20, 2018, I guess, something like that. Um, and he had Bolt there, right? As he was just coming off his second grand near national championship or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ran that dog in the field and it, I mean, 30, 30 seconds and the dog was out of sight. Wow. It was just, he cut him loose, he sent him and the dog was gone, you know, and we, we didn't have four wheelers and stuff. So we walked up there and it, it was probably a 15 minute walk. The amount of ground he covered in less than 60 seconds. What? roughly. And we got up there and he was still holding point on the quail that had been planted out there. He was just locked up. He was about 30 yards off it, just dead locked on it. Wow. Yeah, it was, I mean, we were walking and talking, so we weren't running, but, and George was confident. He was like, he'll be there when we get there. Okay. You know, it was unbelievable, but yeah, he was, if I, if I ever could convince myself to get a pointer, I would probably ask George's opinion on what pointer to get. Cause that dog is, he was a special kind of dog as far as just seeing how he worked a field. Okay. Man, all right. I want to if I if you can ever put me on the phone with Mister Hickox, I want to have him talk about that particular dog, man. Like, I would love to hear just how he's gone about developing and working that dog. Um, because I mean, it, it's 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 doing well on the circuit right now. Yeah. Yep. It's, I think he's three time field dog stud book national champion and 21 time winner or something like that it's something wild i'm terrible with numbers but it's a it's an an, an exorbitant amount of wins <laughs> yeah it really is so, so i can't i couldn't remember the numbers off the top of my head but it's it's out there i'll i'll be up there at his camp picking up news the first of october or so and i'll i'll let him know i'll but, say hey Darrell smith wants to chat with you about bolt man that would that would make my day he would love it man he loves to talk about bolt okay okay well i look i appreciate it man well you um you know and 
just as we end the podcast, man, I just want to publicly thank you for the uh, we're going to call them surprises, but the, the, the plans we got for collaborating um, with Minority Outdoor Alliance. We've been talking about that, too. So I, I want to personally say thank you for for helping me out in that ballpark, too. I'm really excited, man. But, you know, like yeah. we've been talking about getting dogs to kids and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. our national club's going to get involved with it, too, when you're when you're ready for it. So, well, that's that's what we need to do, man. And we're we going to make that a whole we're going to rock out. I'm excited about it. And when you pitched the idea, I was like, I mean, that it falls right under what we're trying to do. So um, with that being said, man, this is going to be a long friendship. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's going to be a long friendship. I can already tell. Um, did you want to end with anything, man? Like, did you, you leave us something for the listeners, man? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot, but <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good with that. No, it's, it's been a, a real gift, you know, to get to know you a bit and the gun dog notebook. And if anybody wants to get a hold of us or find us, look us up on Facebook or Instagram, Trinity Breton. Give me a phone call. Look us up on the website, trinitykennels.org. We just love to talk dogs, man. And if anybody, including you, Darrell, want to come out and hunt this fall, let us know. We'll huh. put you on wild quail. You already know I want to get out there, man. <laughs> I just well, owe y'all you know, a visit. Now I got to get out there. That's right. You got a place to stay, so no excuses. Uh, I, I, hey, look, you ain't said nothing but a word, my friend. Um, you ain't said nothing but a word. I mean, this is this is the beginning of a of a very good relationship. So thank you so much for getting on here. Yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate letting us get on here and, and sponsor your podcast and stuff like that. You're doing good things. And I guess I do also want to just say that I am incredibly impressed with what you're doing at the Minority Outdoor Alliance and the work that is. There's a lot of things that are good things and there's some things that are great things. And I I think this is a great thing. So kudos to you, man. And I'm, we're looking, we're very much looking forward to being a part of it with you. Well, thank you so much, man. It's, it is a, a, the new transition of just life projects, right? Like it, I think we should all have something that we want to strive for, right? And, and something to get you up in the morning. And I, and I think that's what it is. Um, we've been, my wife and I, she's the, 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 the other captain to the the ship as far as minority outdoor alliance um she has been you know super critical to getting it um developed and up and running and we've just been blessed that the tax exempt status and all of the legal work has come in so swiftly and we we've, we've been able to just kind of get the 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 train on the tracks like really 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 quickly and that's a blessing, man. So I don't take it lightly. Um, I do want to do a lot of great things for the bird dog industry and just minorities in the outdoor culture as well. Um, there's just a lot of opportunities there, man. And and you guys are definitely giving us one more. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about dogs being cost prohibitive to young folks. It's, it's one way we can help get people into it that otherwise mm-hmm. couldn't. So. Well, right. And and then it's coming from, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a wide source of knowledge and things like that. I mean, that's, that's where I see the world changing. And we, we spoke about this the first time I, uh, you know, when, when we were getting introduced, the world is changing, man. Like it's a different ball game that's going on right now. And our hunting community and culture is going to look so much different in 10 years. And it's going to be way more colorful, you know, 
So why That's not? Day to come soon, man. That will be that will be incredible. Uh huh. It is coming. Yeah. I mean, we can't we we can't help but see it coming. Um, there's a lot of support from Pheasants Forever. I'm work, doing a lot of stuff with them as far as um Minority Outdoor Alliance, uh, Minority Outdoor Alliance, uh, TRCP kind of, you know, talking to them, um, Orvis, things like that. Like all of these companies, they, 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 they want to see the, the industry and the, the culture and the community change and more so than ever before. That's my thing. And so it, it that day is coming soon. My friend It's coming very, very, very soon. That's awesome. Yeah. You got to let me know when you get some swag on so I can. <laughs> that is cool. I'm going to um, put out the vote, the, 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 the calling card to Ryan Cappy at Cappy Shack as well. I'll probably go through him. Um, very likely go through him um, as far as some swag and stuff like that. So we'll get you some, man. That's awesome. Yeah, we do all of our stuff with Ryan. He's a good guy. Yep, 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 yep. I think I think Ryan's pretty much dominated the whole <laughs> bird dog atmosphere. Like, I think he's got that 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 uh that real estate man. He found a niche market and he owned it. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, man, Josh, I can't thank you enough, buddy. And and. I think we can end the podcast right there. We are we are well into, uh, like I said, the start of a very, very good friendship. Absolutely. I, I couldn't be more pleased, and it's been great so far, man. I look forward to more. Okay. All right. Well, guys, that is another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. We got two episodes down for Trinity Kennels, our new sponsor. So I want to thank them. Um just a million times over guys so stay tuned for another episode coming up next week of course still we could not do this podcast without the good folks that have always lifted us up and now we are just making the team uh even larger so that goes out to onyx maps um check out my promo code gdn20 for 20 percent off at checkout we got Yukonuba Sporting Dog. I want to make sure I give them a super thanks because Jesus, man, my dog's coat and his stamina and everything like that is just always on point. We Yukonuba Sporting Dog Premium Performance uh, 3020 uh, formula. And I also want to thank Garmin for rocking with us still for another, another contract this season. I want to thank uh, Lion Country Supply for rocking out with us. And, and keeping me, you know, well fitted and formed and all kinds of things like that with all the needs of my dog. Um, so make sure you go to the premium supplier of all things dog training related. I also want to thank Dakota 283 Kennels for staying in there with us again, rocking out with us again. And go make sure you use that promo code GDN10. Get yourself 10% off of a Dakota 283 Kennels. All right, guys. Stay tuned for another episode next week.